This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, where you can meet like-minded people fighting for a new vision of aging. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Coming up, the technology that is finding the unmarked mass graves of Indigenous children. And putting the COVID pandemic in historical perspective. Historian Neil Ferguson says that can help us avoid the next one. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's a breakthrough in early detection, especially for cancers like those of the liver, pancreas, and esophagus, which do not have screening tests available. Researchers have developed the first blood test that can accurately detect more than 50 types of cancer, often before there are any clinical signs or symptoms of the disease. According to a paper published in the Annals of Oncology, the test was able to predict the tissue in which the cancer originated in 96% of samples, and it was accurate in 93% while having a very low false positive rate. It's available in the USA by prescription only. 70-year-old Jill Biden is on the cover of Vogue's August issue. In a wide-ranging interview, she opens up about balancing her duties as a first lady while still teaching and why it's important to do both. She's been an educator for more than three decades and married to President Joe Biden for more than 40 years. And in case you want to know what she's wearing on that cover, it's a floral dress by Oscar de la Renta. Unveiling this week of the already controversial Marilyn Monroe statue in Palm Springs, California, drew dozens of protesters who see it as a misogynistic eyesore. The art piece is based on a scene from the movie The Seven-Year Itch, where her skirt is flying and her underwear is exposed. Critics say it may have been acceptable in the 50s, but not now. City officials hope the 26-foot stainless steel monument art piece dubbed Forever Maryland will draw tourists this summer to boost local revenue. By the way, the MZ Museum of Television and Archive in Liberty Village is home to Marilyn Monroe's 1957 Magnavox TV, part of the world's largest private collection of rare vintage television sets. Emilio Flores Marquez from Puerto Rico has become the world's oldest living man at 112 years and 329 days. 
This week, Guinness World Records recognized Marquez, who was born in 1908 and awarded a certificate at his home. The second oldest child of 11, he worked on the family's sugarcane farm and received only three years of formal schooling. His wife of 75 years, Andrea Paris de Flores, with whom he had four children, died in 2010. Asked about the secret to his longevity, Marquez said the key to his advanced years is compassion. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Technology is enabling the discovery of unmarked mass graves of Indigenous children on the sites of former residential schools. The system is called ground-penetrating radar, and it's also used extensively in the construction industry. Dr. Terence Clark of the University of Saskatchewan is a practitioner, and he tells me that locating these burial grounds involves art as well as science. Tell me a little bit about this technology that's being used to find these unmarked graves. What is the proper name for it, and how long has it been around? There are a number of different techniques that can be used. The principal one that we use is called ground-penetrating radar, uh, and that's the one that's been in the news at, at the various school sites. This technology has been around for quite some time. Archaeologists have used it in locations around the world. Uh, it's very well-established for finding uh, things like anything under the ground, so foundations, uh, burials, uh, things like that. And it's used uh, extensively in the construction industry as well to find buried cables and and anything. In that case, is it surprising that it's taken so long for it to be used in this way? Yes, it is surprising that it hasn't been used before. The final report for the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission did point out that there were a number of uh, unmarked cemeteries, and uh, at least at that time, 3,000 missing children. And so it is surprising that more work uh, didn't get done at the time, uh, and that it's taken this long for the public and for the government to really step in and, and really focus on getting this work done. So you have used this technology? Yes, I use it quite a bit. I've used it at the Muskaugan Indian Residential School, and I use it on uh, a number of other unmarked cemetery projects to locate unmarked graves. What is the level of expertise required to use it? It actually takes uh, a fair bit of experience to interpret the data. And so, like I said, there's this equipment is used widely in construction and in other activities. And so finding, uh, for instance, a buried pipe is a lot easier than finding a clandestine grave. And so it's really about uh, sort of archaeology or forensic uh, anthropology experience to really know the difference between some sort of natural phenomena and a shallow, unmarked child's grave. Uh, you refer to them as clandestine cemeteries. Uh, yes. But we're, we're told, uh, certainly in the case of the Calisus, uh finding, there were markers there, but they were bulldozed. Yes. So there's really a couple of different issues. So definitely some schools had marked cemeteries for children. We're aware of those, and this is one of those cases where it was known, and I assume that there are records. Uh, the Catholic Church certainly wouldn't bury uh, a number of people without records. The graves there seem to be in rows. So I think that that's a matter of tracking all of that down. Probably at Cowessus, and certainly at many other schools, there are 
uh, really informal cemeteries that have no records. Um, it's just where the dead children were buried. And so we know that um, a lot of schools have this type of, uh, of burial ground. And these ones are obviously a lot harder to locate. There's not going to be records. All we really have are things like enrollment records. And we know, for instance, that there are three less children this year. And there are no records about where they went. They were not discharged. They didn't go to the hospital. So we just know that they're missing that year. And um, that's how we, we kind of go through and, and figure out um, who might be dead. And then we hear uh, stories from survivors about those children and then try to figure out exactly where they are. But these clandestine ones, these there, there really is no um, overall plan. Uh, and so they're, they're not buried in rows. They're just kind of buried in areas kind of wherever uh, it is accessible around the school. And this obviously changes over time, too. And so there might be decades where they're burying it on one side of the school, and then something changes and they bury some others on the other side of the school. So we need to sort of unravel all of that to help us find out where these children are buried. There are many First Nations. uh, They're asking for grants to pursue this work. So my first question is, are there enough people around with the right expertise to be able to find these graves? No, there is a capacity problem in this country when it comes to this issue. And so I've been working with the Canadian Archaeological Association and the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation to talk about how we can overcome these issues. Uh, One of them would be to offer training programs, especially to um, Indigenous workers that could help with the the ground penetrating radar survey. I think that that would be a a really positive way forward. Um, The consultants that do have um, the equipment can possibly do the surveys. It's really the, the sticky point is about the interpretation. And so that's something that we're going to need to manage because simply there's not enough people right now in Canada that can do it at the pace that communities want to move. Uh, I feel like there's tremendous pressure from the public and from their own communities to do this work right away. And so, um, yes, we are definitely uh, coming up to a time crunch on this. In terms of the money that's involved, Ontario committed $10 million, Alberta committed, uh, committed $8 million, but according to the Globe and Mail any, anyway, the tab could exceed a billion. What do you make of those numbers? It's really tough to put a figure on this. So uh, we really need to know the history of the school. Is it still standing? Has it been bulldozed? Uh, has there been other uh, use of the site? And so some of them have had buildings built on them or are farmland now or campsites. And so all of these complicating factors me makes our work a lot more difficult. It means our search areas are bigger and it takes more time to do. And so um, I would safely say that the $27 million that uh, the government has promised, as well as the provincial monies uh, that provinces have thrown in, is probably not enough for this initial stage. And certainly it will not be enough for any school that is interested in exhuming uh, the child's remains and doing DNA uh, to uh, actually return the fam- the children to their families. Um, that really has to be a, a second project uh, with a, uh, an enormous budget. Uh, if communities want to do that, I, I don't think that they should be um, forced to do that. But if, if they have an interest in doing that, um, that's something that can happen down the road. Dr. Terrence Clark, thank you so much. 
Thanks so much. That was Dr. Terence Clark, Assistant Professor in Archaeology and Anthropology at the University of Saskatchewan. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, how COVID fits into the history of human catastrophes. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, bringing you vital information to boost your health, your finances, and your rights. Find out more at carp.ca. response to COVID-19 compared to the way other catastrophes have been handled through the ages? Why have some countries been so much more successful at controlling the pandemic? Historian Neil Ferguson tackles these questions in his latest book, Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe. I reached him in London. When you look at pandemics, actually the democracies have done quite poorly I think there's a general problem that democracies face, though, with all kinds of disaster. And that is that democracies are quite bad at making, taking difficult decisions early on to prepare for some future scenario. It's much more tempting if you're a democratically elected leader to kick the pan down the road than to make some upfront sacrifice to avoid a future disaster. Successfully averting disaster does not get great payoffs in democratic politics. And that's I think that's a systemic problem that it's pretty hard to fix. Let's drill down a bit on the successful countries. There's Taiwan and South Korea, and at least in terms of the vaccine rollout, Israel. And one thing they have in common is that they're all under threat generally. The things that that Taiwan, uh, South Korea and Israel have in common is that they are very much threatened by their neighbors. And if you're threatened by, by your neighbor, you are kind of on the alert. So I think there was an advantage to being generally paranoid and and quick on the draw. Whereas in in the US, in the UK, in many Western countries, uh, we were very slow on the draw. We kind of believed the Chinese government. We believed the World Health Organization. We did basically nothing through January, February, and into early March. Is part of the problem the World Health Organization? They seem to appease China. Is that part of the problem? Yes, I think the WHO got much too close to China. It didn't used to be like this. Back at the time of SARS, the WHO was really tough with China. This WHO, uh, I'm afraid, has much weaker leadership, and it led to a series of major mistakes. And we need to recognize that something went badly wrong at the WHO. It became very political, the response to the pandemic, especially in the United States, where it was very polarized. How did that happen? Public health issues like vaccination in the 1950s or even in the more recent past were not really topics of deep political partisan division. Unfortunately, one feature of of life in the United States in the last 20 years is that everything has become a topic of of partisan division. That's ultimately very damaging because it's actually kind of nuts to think that there's a, a a political stance you can take on a public health issue. Uh, But it it led, I think, to a lot of of, of erroneous behavior and ultimately probably led to some some of the excess mortality that we've seen. When I look at the case of the 1957-58 pandemic, which is a very different time, a completely different response is, is visible in the records. There wasn't any controversy about vaccination then. People were just very glad 
that there was a, a, a vaccine that worked and they rushed to get it. So I don't know how we get back to those lost times, but it, it certainly seems to me that it was easier to make public health policy in those days. What was the role of populists, particularly Donald Trump, but it also seems that populist leaders in other countries like Brazil did particularly badly, are doing particularly badly, and, and are, you know, used it politically and, and misled people on things like hydrochloroquine. Well, I think Donald Trump made so many mistakes that that I'd have had to write an extra chapter to do full justice to them all. And he was in good company because the other populist leaders, not only Boris Johnson in the UK, but uh, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, Narendra Modi in India, India, I could add Viktor Orban in Hungary. I mean, they they all, in many ways, misjudged the problem, made uh, interventions that were counterproductive, if not downright harmful. And yet... If we conclude in the United States that we solved the problem by getting rid of Trump and electing uh, Joe Biden and that all you have to do in the UK is get rid of Boris Johnson and you'll never have another public health disaster, then I think we're kidding ourselves. The things that led to really high mortality weren't necessarily presidential or prime ministerial decisions. CDC completely screwed up the Centers for Disease, completely screwed up testing. Uh, that wasn't anything to do with Donald Trump. That was a bureaucratic fail on a really large scale. We didn't even try contact tracing. I'd blame that much more on the tech companies than on, than on Trump. There was no effective protection of the elderly in care homes. And I'd I, I add, finally, that quarantine enforcement in most Western countries was terrible uh, compared with uh, what was going on in the countries that did this really well. Uh, like Taiwan or South Korea. And so I think when you look at the things that really led to high mortality, it's hard to say that the prime ministerial or presidential decisions were crucial. So what do we learn from this? We probably have a kind of dysfunctional bureaucratic culture, not only in public health, but right across the board. Very good at preparing a preparedness plan. It's just that the plan doesn't work when the disaster strikes. It's all about being quick on the draw, not investing enormously in in forecasting or or prophesying the next disaster. You'll probably get it wrong. It's better just to be quick on the draw. When the first tremors occur, be ready for the earthquake. And I think that's a general lesson that's applicable in all the kind of different forms of disaster that I talk about in Doom. Okay, interesting. Let's hope that we are quick on the draw the next time. Neil Ferguson, thanks so much. My pleasure, Libby. That was historian Neil Ferguson talking about doom, the politics of catastrophe. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.